there's a moment you realize you're ready for what's next in your career. Maybe it's when you're trying a new scone recipe and think, I could open a cafe. Or maybe you're helping a coworker and say, I could teach a course on this. Whatever your moment is, it's never too early to plan for a career that lives longer. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. For skills training, resume tips, and job listings, visit aarp.org work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. So happy you can join me. I'm amazed to say that we are entering week 15 of the National Football League season. It always seems like you just get on this roller coaster at the start of the year, and by the time it dumps you off at the end, you're feeling a little queasy, a little tired, a little whatever, but man, you had a heck of a ride, and we're kind of on that same ride this year, Paul, and Thanks so much for joining me. I hope uh, everything is good in your world. I went to Cincinnati to see a football game over the weekend, had a good time, and and we'll talk about that and a bunch of other things. Tell me how your life is going. Everything's good. You know, trying to, just like everybody else this time of year, trying to be good at my job and also good to my kids at Christmas and uh, getting enough time to, to get out and do all the things that come with the holiday season while remembering uh, to take care of everything that's important during the day. So it's a fun challenge, uh, and it was a great weekend of football. I, I certainly missed college football on Saturday, uh, but all the action yesterday made up for it. I I thought there were so many interesting games, and being in a game, I don't get to see everything that I would like to. Um, I love sitting there and watching Red Zone, and I didn't have a chance to do that on Sunday in the press box in Cincinnati. Uh, but... I, I I think I must have missed some great and I just and I just watched the highlights. I must have missed some great football in Tampa and with Buffalo coming back. And again, I'm not a big moral victories guy, but you know, I, let's start there briefly because, as I say, I'm not a big moral moral victories kind of guy, but I find that when a team comes back from the brink and comes back after a short week against the defending Super Bowl champs on the road, Buffalo must have shown quite a lot in that second half. Yeah, I'm with you, Peter. There aren't that many moral victories in the NFL, but when you watch the first half of that game and just how the Bills were not there offensively and defensively, and then how they were able to come back and show off Josh Allen and finally give him a little bit of help, tiny little bit of help with the running game and how their defense was finally able to find a way to affect Tom Brady. Um, it was hard to watch that second half and not feel good about what the Buffalo Bills were doing. And they desperately needed it because the feeling was on the complete opposite end during that first half because, I mean, they just competitively were not around on either side of the ball. Yeah. Um... 
you know, I should mention, we're going to have a guest on later in the pod, Bill Polian, uh, the Hall of Fame general manager. He's written a book about how to build a Super Bowl champion. He's got some really, really good interviews in the book with um, some all-timers like Joe Gibbs and, and Parcells. And I, I think he went into this book, uh, as a matter of fact, I know he went into this book with an absolute open mind. You know, he obviously built three teams in the NFL, but I think he wanted to know what he didn't know, <laughs> you know, mm. and uh, you'll get a kick out of that conversation. We had a good discussion uh, and uh, we will listen to Bill Polian later on in the show. Um, Paul, I, I want to just take you down for a moment. Uh, I want to take you down Peter King memory lane uh, my wife, Ann, and I, uh, our first home was in Cincinnati. We bought a home in um, 19, she thinks it's 82. I thought it was 81. But anyway, we bought a home in the early 80s in Cincinnati <clears throat> for $39,500. <laughs> and um, so, and, and I love Cincinnati. There was so, there was so much going on. I remember uh, early on, we lived next to an apartment complex where a bunch of the Reds lived. Uh, Ron Oster lived there and a bunch of players would cycle in and out of there. So I'd see them all the time. But I really loved Cincinnati because it, it had all the sports, but it had a little bit more of the small town feel. So it was a great, great place to start my career. But one of the reasons I get sentimental going back there <clears throat> is that, you know, my first job ever covering an NFL team was in Cincinnati in 1984. I worked for the Cincinnati Enquirer. I covered the Bengals. It was Sam Weich's rookie year, very imaginative head coach. And uh, Chris Collinsworth was on that team. He used to use my phone. He and Boomer Esiason, who was a rookie quarterback that year, they would come into my room in the dorm where I would live during training camp. And <clears throat> because there was only two pay phones in the whole dorm and I was living in the player's dorm on the, on the first floor, they understood that I had a phone installed and they would just come in and shoo me away and use my phone for a <laughs> while. But anyway, uh, it's just a really fun time. And I, I spoke to Mike Brown you know, the 82 year old now owner, but at the time his dad, Paul Brown owned the team. And what was so incredible about that time is that first of all, I'm living in the dorm, you know, with the players and the coaches and I'm sleeping there most nights. I would go home was like an hour and 20 minutes away from my home in Cincinnati. But, but what was really cool about it was Paul Brown, um, I used to stand with him at practice and he used to teach me about football. And it was just such a, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I, I'm so stupid, quite honestly, to not have taken better notes or maybe to record, to have recorded some of the conversations I had with him in that, and kind of that golden season. And I'll tell you one other quick story. After one year, I go to Newsday to cover the New York Giants. And I'm there in 1985. And I'm having a conversation one day with Mike Brown. Um, and I told him, yeah, my dad's not doing too well. He's got cancer. He's not going to live much longer. And so that week, later that week, a package showed up 
at my parents' house in Connecticut. And it was, there was a book in there, Paul Brown's book, uh, written with Jack Clary, uh, basically how he did what he did uh, as a coach, as a team architect, everything. And uh, there was a letter in there and he wrote a letter to my dad. He said, hey, I, I hear you're not doing very well. I just want to tell you that um, you raised a very fine boy. I worked with your That's son great. in Cincinnati. And my father, you know, who at the time had only about two weeks to live, that was like, you know, my mother said my dad just started crying. He just yeah. couldn't believe that Paul Brown knew me. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask you, uh, yeah. uh, Peter, I want, I want to ask you, I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't been on this part of the conversation very often where someone was talking football and learned football from Paul Brown. So I know yeah. you didn't write things down the way you wanted to back then, but what do you remember as the, the number one thing that Paul Brown taught you that you learned about football from him that you kind of still carry with you now? That he was absolutely convinced beyond the shadow of a doubt that you learned not something a lot from every practice. He would watch players in every practice and he was convinced. I made a comment to him one day. I said, oh, my God. Because, look, Wilmington, Ohio, Paul, the Midwest, <clears throat> hot, humid. I mean, the Bengals most days, most days, practice from 9 to 11 in the morning and 3 to 5 in the afternoon. Now, you get on the practice field in Wilmington, Ohio, at 3 in the afternoon mm -hmm. uh, in late July and August. I'm just telling you, the average temperature is going to be 90 degrees. Yep. And every day this happened. And Paul Brown would be out there with his huge Panama hat on his head. He was very careful about his skin. Uh, and he would, one day I just made a comment. Oh, man, you've been doing this for all these years, this weather, this the heat in the summer. And I said, do you ever just say, man, let's end this a little early. Let's go inside. <laughs> And he looked at me very sternly and he said, <clears throat> young man, this is our lifeblood. And he didn't have to say anymore. He really didn't talk a lot. You know, I would, if he, I would ask him questions, but he was just absolutely convinced that, you know, if there was a practice, he was going to learn something. I remember once he really, there was a little competition for one of the running back positions. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, it was like, um, was it Archie Griffin? I forget who was there, but there was competition for a running back position. And he was, he watched it day after day, watch every carry. And one of the things he pointed out was, <clears throat> I want to know who's going to be the best guy in the middle of the fourth quarter on a hot day. So I want to know if the practice runs from three to five, and it's your second practice of the day, who's working his rear end off at 440, you know, who's yeah. still all there. That's yep. who Paul Brown liked, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, and they've done a bunch of new things, Paul, at the stadium there, uh, at Paul Brown Stadium. In fact, it's really crazy. His great-great-granddaughters both he recently graduated, I don't know, three, four years ago, maybe from Dartmouth. They're twins. And they both now work for the, the Bengals. And one of them designed 
a conference room that is very heavy on team history. And it's got a lot of Paul Brown stuff in there. And it's just, you feel good about the history of the game when you know that even though we know look, the Bengals are not an all-powerful franchise, but they've got some interesting history. They've had some great players in the organization. And I just really enjoyed being back there, especially, you know, I say this about teams like Cleveland, Detroit, Cincinnati to some degree, but you don't want to see any team be bad for a long time. You just don't, you know, it's just not, not, it's not really fair. Like I really feel for the Detroit lions. I mean, I just, you know, they've got some good people there. I think Dan Campbell's got a chance to be a good coach and just year after year after year, there's a black cloud over their head. And it was interesting. I was talking to Mike, uh, to Mike, to Kyle Shanahan, the 49ers coach after this game on Sunday. And one of the things he said is, Hey, these guys are really good. And I could tell, he said, when I was watching tape to prepare for him, he said, I got home. They they had lost uh, ugly in week 13 on the road uh, at Seattle. And he came home and he said, I was really ticked off. I couldn't sleep. So I just said, ah, let me put on the Bengals Chargers game. I don't really know Burrow that well. Um, let's put on the tape and watch that. And he goes, after I finished watching Bur- Burrow, I really couldn't sleep. And because I just said, my God, this guy is really something. And you saw that in the game on Sunday, Paul. I don't know how much of the fourth quarter you saw, but Joe Burrow basically said to his team, guys, get on my back. We're winning this game. And they didn't win the game, but you just felt that. He made a couple of great throws. Yeah. A one trolling the back of the end zone (laughs) where, uh, you know, Jamar Chase – he actually, Jamar Chase was, was trolling the, the, the end line of the end zone going to the left, and Burrow actually threw it a little bit behind him. And it was almost like the old classic back shoulder fade that, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the receiver will wonder, oh, my God, he underthrew me. Duh, I underthrew you on purpose. And, and this particular throw, he threw it behind him on purpose because he knew that he was going to be, had the chance to be throwing into coverage if he actually led uh, Chase on, on that play. And Paul, I'm going to ask you a totally open-ended question. Give me your, from the eye of, you know, a former quarterback at a high level in the Big Ten, give me your little early review of Joe Burrow. I've, I've loved watched him play since, uh, since we were studying him. I think it was a year and a half now, Peter, coming out of LSU. And I didn't really keep that close an eye on him at LSU. I was fully aware of how well they were throwing the ball and the kind of numbers he was putting up. And I never really watched him until it became draft season. And I tell you what really stood out then. Uh, Numbers are great. Receivers are great. But the one thing was, if there was a, a stat to track, ball went to the right place and it went there accurately. I mean, I, I think it would have been above 90%. I know yeah. it's not an official number. But it was amazing how often he would diagnose the play, go to the right place, and the ball was accurate. It was time and time and time again. So now now fast forward to to last season and also what we're seeing now. They're not playing Kentucky and Ole Miss anymore, so it doesn't happen quite as often. 
But from from his first game, you could see that in the NFL. The difficulty of that transition didn't erase that strength of his game. I think it's still around. And if you're ever watching him now, and I know you're just at the game, but if you're watching him again in a full game, right read, accurate throw, it happens a lot for a kid with that kind of experience. So that's number one. I love that when he was at, at LSU, and I like how it's translated now, early point in his career. Next thing, and I go back to the draft, this term we hear a lot, Peter, arm talent. All this kid's got great arm talent. I think when you watch him, you can really peel off the layers of the onion there. And to me, that means like I watch him throw a quick slant and it's not all speed and arm strength. It's the right pace. He, he, he makes it so it's easy for the receiver to catch. If he's throwing a post corner, it's not driven, but it's not like a balloon either. And when yeah. he's throwing that deep ball, he can turn it over like a punter and just drop it in there. So uh, you can say a kid has arm talent. Watch Joe Burrow for a couple of games at a time and the number of different kind of throws he makes that have the right kind of pace on him. Uh, his arm talent's really good. And I like that I can attach details to that cliche term that's thrown around all the time. So a long way of saying I, I'm really encouraged by, by what he's done this last season and a half. So, Paul, the, the last thing I would I'd tell you about you know, being in Cincinnati over the weekend and watching that game, uh, at least from the Bengals standpoint. And then I want to get into 149ers thing. You know, we're talking about Joe Burrow. We're talking about this great throw he made to Jamar Chase. I'm going to tell you the situation that that throw happened in. <clears throat> There's nine and a half minutes left in the game. Bengals are down 20 to six. Uh, they haven't done anything good consistently on offense the whole game. Burrow is getting hit a lot. Um, I mean, Bose is living in the backfield. And, and so this was with nine and a half minutes left. They're down 20 to six. This is fourth and five. And Zach Taylor said, we're not going for the field goal. I don't know that we're going to get two more shots at it. We probably will, but I don't know that. Um, We'll at least get one, but I don't know about two. So anyway, it's fourth and five. And <clears throat> he runs all over creation. And finally, you know, the scramble drill, he gets Jamar Chase in the back of the end zone and he completes it. And what was amazing is that if you look at that particular throw, he threw that ball around 32 yards in the air to a target that uh, was not, leading the receiver and it looked for a minute like it was a bad pass and chase basically turned around and caught it touchdown but i remember watching uh the alabama game uh, against lsu when burrow had his great year at lsu and i remember thinking how amazing it was that on the first throw of the game and on the second throw of the game Burrow went downfield. He didn't get, you know, he didn't just dink and dunk and, and everything. And, you know, because a lot of coaches say, well, I want to get my quarterback some confidence early. <clears throat> and I asked Joe Brady about that at the time because I was doing a story on Burrow before the draft. I asked Joe Brady and he goes, that's laughable. We never one time had to call a play to quote, give Joe confidence. 
he already was brimming with confidence and he didn't need that before any game. And I always think of that when I think about Burrow making a gigantic throw on fourth and five with the game on the line. That is just perfect. I remember when I was watching him uh, getting ready for the draft, I already talked about it with you, Peter, but one of the things I wrote down, because uh, I went back through my notes here today, I wrote down multiple times, never afraid. This kid isn't yeah. afraid. And then I was reading your article this afternoon, uh, Football Morning America, and I believe you had quoted from Mike Brown that he said, and I don't remember the exact words leading up to it after it, but I think he said that. He said he, he's not afraid. He's not afraid yeah. of anything. And it's yeah. one thing to say that Monday through Saturday, I'm not afraid of these guys. It's another thing to stand in the pocket on fourth down, yeah. like fourth and five, like you talked about. It came to my mind when I was watching earlier in that game time drive. He dropped back, and I think his first completion on that drive, he had his feet set in his own end zone. I mean, he, he didn't look yeah. afraid a single oh, yeah. bit, and he never does. And, you know, it's I don't want to paint the picture this is a perfect quarterback. I mean, I went back through his numbers today. I think he has four games this year with multiple interceptions. So, and they've lost all four of those games. So he has, there are a number of things he needs to do better, uh, but the, the certain intangible things, um, not being afraid and having that kind of a courage and having it show up during the game. Again, pretty fun to watch. You're actually talking about the last touchdown drive that he had, which uh, Bosa sacked him back yeah. to the, back to the Cincinnati five. Right. And uh, it's second and 18 at his own five yard line. And uh, six plays later, it's a touchdown. They almost right. scored too early, you know, yeah. because they did give the 49ers, uh, you know, a chance to win it at the end, but they miss on the Robbie Gould field goal. Um, Paul, I want to ask you one question about the 49ers, and it's about George Kittle. You know, the last two weeks, I've noticed this because I watched a lot of the Seattle game last week. And this game this week, I really think that a player, an offensive player, <clears throat> is special when the opposition knows he's getting the ball. I mean, I think I'm right in saying 15 targets uh, against the Bengals, 13 completions, Garoppolo to, to Kittle. The defense knows he's getting the ball. They can't stop it. Right. And Kittle made some, just some fabulous catches. The one uh, catch that was over Von Bell where he kind of climbed the ladder. And as I wrote, it was like he went up against LeBron James and snared the rebound somehow. Um, I am a, I've always been an admirer of Kittle and he, and he's getting a little bit nicked up as the years go on, Yeah, even though he's yeah. still fairly early in his career, but like he got nicked up. He strained a calf yesterday and you could see he was limping on the sidelines and then he would just come out and make more big plays. And I just said to myself, this guy is worth his weight in gold. Absolutely. Uh, 100% is. And it reminds me of watching Aaron Rodgers with Devontae Adams. And I know it's, yeah. a, it's a different level quarterback. It's a different position, different kind of pass catcher. But it's the same thing, Peter, in the sense that you know, you know where the ball's going. You know where that quarterback's looking. And it's a tremendous compliment to everybody involved that they still make it happen. 
couple things come to mind. Number one, when you watch Kittle, um, watch how many times he lines up in a different spot, whether it's as a fullback, yeah. as a wide receiver, as an attached tight end, as a tight end, maybe two yards outside the tackle. A tremendous credit to his athleticism and to Kyle Shanahan uh, for, for all the ways he finds to use him. And I don't want to say hide him, Peter, because everybody right. knows they're looking for him, but you got to look at a different place for him all the time. Um, so it's, it's his athleticism. It's Kyle Shanahan's excellent use of formations and motions. And I think we need to give more credit than we do to Jimmy Garoppolo. I, I'm, I'm yes. not putting him in the Pro Bowl, but he has had a good year. And let's yeah. not forget how difficult it must have been emotionally and mentally for him. And they had a bad stretch during, you know, during the middle of it. Uh, I think he has played really, really well. So when we think about Kittle doing all those things and Shanahan helping him so much, let's not forget about the quarterback who's doing pretty well also. I want to read you what Shanahan told me after the game about Jimmy Garoppolo. It's a, it's sort of a long quote, but it's interesting. And it's gotten some attention in the Bay Area in the last 24 hours. Uh, and because I just asked him an open-ended question hour or so after the game, I spent 10 or 15 minutes with him. I said to him, uh, oh, just open-ended question. How's Jimmy handle what is a difficult situation, no matter what anybody would call it? And I'll read this to you. Jimmy's one of the favorite people that I've ever coached. He's a hell of a dude. He's not trying to hide anything. I don't want to downplay it and say this whole situation is not a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's really hard on him. But he came in with the right mindset all the way back to OTAs. He hasn't gotten sideways at all through any of it. No matter what he hears, he's been the exact same guy I've known the four years prior. And that has given us a chance to fight through this year. It's given us the chance to be at where we're at right now. And I thought that was a ringing endorsement for Garoppolo. And, you know, we can make a list of where he belongs on the, in the quarterback list and all that stuff. But I'll just say this one thing about Garoppolo, and I'll quote Kyle Shanahan. He's a hell of a dude. <laughs> you know, to deal with this the way he has, the crushing disappointment. Hey, a couple of years ago, we gave you this gigantic contract, and now uh, we're drafting your replacement. And I will always believe that they're drafting his replacement at least half, uh, at least, and at least half the reason is can't stay on the field. And look, early in his career, Phil Sims had the exact same thing. Uh, he was injured, not in a major way, but injured and missed time in four of his first five years in the NFL. And everybody said, oh, Phil Sims, injury prone. Well, Phil Sims, you know, turned out to be, relatively speaking, for the last two-thirds of his NFL life, an absolute Iron Man. <clears throat> but, you know, that's the, rat, that's the tag you're going to get. Um, but I agree with you. I think Jimmy is really, really something. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? 
an Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, this summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. At the theater, more than the movies come to life, movie lovers march in and skip the line with digital tickets to the latest movies on the free Fandango app, ready to grab some snacks. Pick me! And head to the best seats in the house for a night of romance, terror, and quality family screen time. <laughs> Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Gold for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. Paul, I want to hit on three things in the time we have left. Um, I want to know, and I should have asked you this when we were talking about the Bills. Okay, so I didn't watch much of the game. I saw the highlights, and I saw the non-pass interference call uh, on Stefan Diggs when it looked like he was getting mugged. Um, and the internet was filled Sunday night and still all day Monday about how, oh, they're protecting the Super Bowl champs and um, the Bills didn't get a fair run from the officials. You watched the game. What did you think of the non-calls that the Bills were so upset about? I think the one that they're mostly concerned about, Peter, is the one you mentioned, Stefan Diggs. Uh, if it was late in the game or it was overtime, I forget, but I can picture it on the TV, bottom left. I think that is a no call. I, I know right now what? that you see that and you expect nine times out of 10 or even 10 times out of 10 for the flag to be thrown. But I think at that point in the game, it's two guys battling and their hands end up on each other. And to me, that's okay. That's, right. that's part of football. It's part of the balls in the air. And there's going to be a little contact. I like that that wasn't called. It stands out because it's called so often now, so almost automatically, that fans and teams, I guess rightfully so, because of the recent history, are wondering why wasn't that called. But I don't think that kind of play, where both the DB and the receiver have their hands in each other, if they're not really ripping or tearing down or affecting, it's late in the game, it's tight. I don't mind that, that, that call being let go. Okay. The one that got called late, uh, I, I think it was against Mike Evans. Something's got to be done, Peter, about this flag that's, again, automatically thrown when the DB doesn't get his head around because it's man yeah. coverage. Quarterback throws some version of a back shoulder fade or kind of like a mini fade route. And before he even has a chance to get his head around, the ball's on top of him. He wasn't interfering with Mike Evans. He didn't have his head turned around. So by the letter of the law, I guess it's interference. But he didn't really grab the receiver or make it impossible for him to catch the ball. He just didn't have his head turned. And they were like basically fastened to each other by the time the ball got there. I yeah. don't like that call at all. I understand why it was called because it's called all the time. But it's too easy for the offense to pick up the first down in the yardage when the DB didn't really interfere he just didn't get his head around yeah that's very interesting paul one of the premises of my trip to cincinnati 
um, was to sort of cover a game uh, with the 2021 NFL middle class. And there are so many teams in this middle class right now uh, that are still in playoff contention. And that to me was so interesting, uh, you know, to sort of start to look into that topic a little bit about why 24 teams, here we are with, uh, as the calendar goes, less than a month before the end of the regular season, 24 teams are legit in, you know, still in the playoff hunt, 75% of the league, <clears throat> you know, uh, has six wins or more. And I just, I'm curious. I think it might be a coincidence. I'm not sure. You have any theories about why we're seeing such an even brand of football in 2021? I'm going to stay true to kind of a version of what I've been talking about when, when we've kind of touched on this topic the last couple, three months here, Peter. I guess really the last couple months as it's become clear that there are a lot of teams in the middle is that I'm going to look at it from the quarterback's point of view. There are so many quarterbacks right now that belong ranked between, let's say, 10 and 15. Yeah. I, could, I could give you a dozen to 14 quarterbacks. I could make a legitimate argument that should be rated in there. And that, I mean, on one hand, Peter, there's nothing new about we get to mid-December and there's a handful of teams with a handful of decent quarterbacks who might be in the postseason. They might not be, but we need three hands to count those number of teams this year. And to me, the way I look at the game, it's because there are so many B to B minus quarterbacks. And I mean that more as a compliment than a put down. There are a lot of decent quarterbacks in the game right now. And that's why there are nearly half of the teams in the NFL, to me, have six or seven wins. And you know, go back and look at it. It's a wide range. I mean, from Jalen Hurts to Matt Ryan, yeah. from Taylor Heineke to Teddy Bridgewater, you're not going to put those guys, uh, you're not going to draft them in the first round again. You're not going to have them in the Pro Bowl. They're doing more good than bad. And there are so many quarterbacks in that category right now. That's why I think that there are, you know, more than half of the teams in the league are battling to be in the postseason and have a legitimate chance to think that they can be. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I, I, uh, I don't really know whether I, and, and I like that thought that the quality of quarterbacking is narrowing the gap between, you know, look, the Bengals are now a threat because of Joe Burrow, you know, mm -hmm. and even the teams where you look at him and you say, man, he's not a top 10 quarterback, the 49ers. I mean, yeah. Kyle Shanahan said something interesting to me after the game. He said, uh, Peter, look up our, and I, I don't know that I'm going to do this. It would take two hours, but I might. Look up all the games, you know, since I've been coach here. Uh, <clears throat> we have an incredible record when we have zero turnovers. The only, the only thing that I am thinking when he says that is, I bet most teams have an incredible record when they have no turnovers. You know, yeah. I'm not positive. I'm not positive, but I would, I would guess that stat in a vacuum, if they've won 85% of their games where they don't turn it over, <clears throat> I'm not sure that's going to be different from, let's say, Seattle or, or you know, whatever. <clears throat> um, I do want to make one point, and actually it's Trent Williams of the 49ers 
made it to me. And it's the one thing in asking a bunch of people around football um, why they think that it's so even today. <laughs> Trent Williams said, I'll just tell you what I've noticed until Trent Williams was drafted in 2010. He came in, and by the way, in the Tim Tebow, Demarius Thomas draft. Um, in, the, in I think in that, in, in that round, yeah. But uh, he, he said to me, what to me is the real difference in football from when I started to now is that when you bring rookies in, man, they're ready to play right away. And that is a, a really prescient, I think, smart comment. I'm not positive that it's true, but I do think that teams are taking rookies from the first day of training camp. And I'll never forget, I was, in, I was at the Cowboys in week one of training camp. And Mike McCarthy is not usually like this, but I said, hey, give me some observations about your team. And he goes, so I'm telling you, Micah Parsons has earned a role on day one with our team. I said, it's still July. You know already that Micah Parsons, is gonna, he said, Peter, he makes a play in practice every day that just totally tilts the field toward the defense. And so I, my, my only point is that I think coaches, even coaches maybe who traditionally have been a little bit stubborn about playing young players, now they've kind of thrown that out the window and they say, I'm playing the best guy. I don't care if he is 21 years old. I, and, and I don't know if you've seen that or noticed it, but I just wanted to throw that out to you. Absolutely. It, it, it hasn't come to my mind like when you when you sent the list of things you wanted to discuss today. Um, I, I didn't think of that as as one of the things, but like every team has not only I don't want to say every team, a lot of teams had not only their first round pick big names, but middle round guys that show up. I mean, San Francisco's running game. I mean, it comes to mind. I, I believe it's uh, Mitchell is is the running back. I think Elijah Mitchell. Mitchell yeah. Yeah looks the part. I mean, mid-round guy, you know, relatively kind of a no-name kind of a guy coming into the league. There are those kind of players everywhere. And just thinking about it in this moment, Peter, those kids aren't, they, they don't come into the NFL afraid. And, you know, may, maybe they should right. come in with a little more intimidation, but I think more and more, I mean, they went to college expecting to be in the NFL. They get to OTAs and they, they carry that with them. So I, I think that attitude that bravado that they bring with them, no matter if they're a first round pick or a sixth round pick, a lot of those guys are expecting to be there and they kind of perform that way. I, I mean, it's all interesting. And I think it ha you have to see it for more than one year before you make any definitive judgment. But <clears throat> I'm just interested in watching now and, I, and I'll be watching this the rest of the year. I'm just really interested in watching how, um, watching how close it is and, and whether this might be a trend that continues into next year. So we'll see. Paul, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me this week. Um, we had a nice little conversation. And I'm going to turn now to Bill Polian, who obviously is a Hall of Fame NFL general manager. He's just written a book with Vic Carucci, 
longtime pro football writer, called Super Bowl Blueprints. Hall of Famers reveal the keys to football's greatest dynasties. And one of the reasons why I was interested in this book when it came in the mail is it, it's not Bill Polian just preaching, hey, here's what I think. Polian went out and talked to a lot of people who both people who uh, built Super Bowl teams and people who were the centerpieces of Super Bowl teams. Um, you know, Steve Young and, and Jim Kelly and Peyton Manning and uh, Mean Joe Green, just a lot of people who were just intimately involved with forming great, great teams. So we're gonna get to my conversation now with Bill Polian, author of Super Bowl Blueprints. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a the Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. The Premier League is built on hope. The hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long, but Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. And the hope of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this. How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock. Really happy to be joined by Bill Polian, uh, who's got a new book out, which I really find it interesting. When it was sent to me, one of the things that I really liked about Super Bowl Blueprints, uh, which is done by Bill Polian and Vic Carucci, one of the things I really liked about it is that, Bill, you really kind of lay out with some significant detail how you believe Super Bowl teams should be built. And I don't want to ask you to do a crib notes of exactly how you think they should be built. But what I wanted to do is talk to you a little bit about something that I find in today's football to be extremely uh, important that I think, I think the media overlooks. And I know it's very simple to say, well, you got to have a quarterback. But... I think the way you went about your quarterback prospecting over the years was really, really interesting, both in Buffalo, obviously in Indianapolis with Peyton Manning, but also in Carolina, where you ended up not doing as well as you did either in Buffalo or Indianapolis, but you still got a professional quarterback who ended up having 
a good NFL career. So I want to start there and just ask you, is there any position in any sport, a team sport, that you believe is more significant to his cause than quarterback and why? Uh, No, there isn't. There isn't any position that affects the game as much as the quarterback does in football. He touches the ball on every play. The pitcher does that in baseball. And obviously the game can't start until the pitcher throws the ball. But once the ball is out of his hands, then there's nothing more for him to do except react to what takes place. And if the ball's hit and he has to cover first base or whatever have you. In football, the game can't start until the quarterback takes the snap. But then after the snap, He has to do three things that no one else in sports has to do. Number one, he has to ascertain what the defense is doing. And that's 11 people moving in unison. Number two, he has to ascertain based on those movements to whom he should give the ball. Should he give it to the running back? Should he throw it to the wide receiver? Should he throw it to the tight end? And then finally, he has to deliver the ball. And that's much more difficult than what the pitcher has to do. Although people d- correctly draw comparisons between the two, quarterbacking is a lot harder. I also think that one of the ways in your book that I think you do a very interesting job in talking to the people who have been there. It isn't just the preaching of here's what I think. It's essentially you know, a lot of the people who have built these great teams and then played on them. And, you know, I always wonder, you have your ways of doing it and you have your opinions and you have very, very strong opinions about both the architecture of teams and things like that. But tell me a person or two in this book who either told you something that you didn't know or might have changed your mind about the importance of some aspect of building a champion? It happened in every chapter. (laughs) I'll give you a couple of examples, but it happened in every chapter. I don't know, you've written many more books than I, and you're a professional writer, but in this experience, I learned something from everyone I talked to. It was absolutely amazing. I came away absolutely convinced that, first of all, there are some common threads to building championships, but more important than that, there there were things I learned that I never, I never ever considered in, in real depth. Two examples. One, the head coach. When you're a front office person or an assistant coach, um, you interact with the head coach and you know he's the boss and he controls your your destiny in in many respects, but he's also a colleague. And if he's a pretty special person, you're attracted to him and and you really in many respects revere him. When you hear players talk about the head coach, guys who have played for these legendary head coaches, his persona 
his ability to touch the team in every way and touch individual players in every way is so far out of the realm of my of my understanding it's unbelievable he control he's a god we talked here to hall of fame players who were scared to death of the head coach who who recognized that correctly that he controlled their destiny their very livelihood and and i didn't I didn't view it that way, but I learned listening to these men that that's absolutely the case. What, why why was that? You've been around the game so much and around coaches who certainly could control a meeting room and, uh, you know, and a, and a locker room. Why did that really strike you? I would have assumed that you already would have known that, or was it, just the absolute vice-like hold that some of them, maybe like a Bill Parcells or, or a Gibbs might, might have had with their teams? It's the latter, and it was every single coach we talked to. We, we talked to uh, every single player we, we talked to about their coach. It was, that's, the, that's the central theme that, that runs through this book, that if you want to be a champion, you have to have a great charismatic head coach and in all cases, he has to have a unique system of football that, that is, is new and innovative at the time that it was uh, advanced. You gotta have a GM who can find the players, the players the coach wants, and then you have to have really good players. And those three things, the fourth thing you have to have is an organization that's committed to supporting those players and coaches and that GM and not meddling and, and, and not going off on tangents and not funding them well enough. Organizations do win championships, but that's the common thread. I mean, there is a, think about this. Joe Gibbs spent his life in football up until he went to the Washington Redskins as a disciple of Don Coriel. He got to the Redskins, installed Air Coriel went 0-6 and recognized that he didn't have the people to, to run it. He also recognized that he had to play against Lawrence Taylor twice every year. And if he was going to go anywhere in the division, he had to figure out a way to handle him. So he and his staff invented the one back, no huddle offense to do that. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I never viewed Joe in that light. I mean, I knew he'd been close to Coriel but not a disciple of Cordell. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things that, that the folks we talked to gave us so much detail and so much emotion and so much history. It was such a joy to, to, to do this book. And, and so, you know, I, I learned so much and, it, you know, I hope it comes through to the reader. You know, one of the guys who always has really interested me in football is Ron Wolf because of the, um, what I would call, he's almost got uh, what I would call sort of a fierce independence to him that he's gonna do things his way. And if he failed, like he said, I'm trading for this overweight party guy quarterback as the first thing he ever did as the uh, you know, as the GM of the Packers after hiring Mike Holmgren, 
and he brings in Brett Favre. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, when, when Bob Kraft hired Bill Belichick and everybody's telling him, don't do that. This guy's a dud. And a bunch of people in football saying, you cannot bring in Favre. And he, as he told me one time, look, if I have a job and I know that I have to build the best team that I can, well, I'm going to trust my instinct. And my instinct is that Favre is going to be a great quarterback. What did you learn from talking to Ron Wolf? Well, for one thing, uh, he's really clear-eyed in how he makes decisions. He doesn't let any outside influence get in the way. Secondly, he was pretty fearless. Right. Because he had a de that deal with Al for a long, long period of time. And he talked about a couple of occasions where Al said to him, you better be right or you're going to lose your job. Uh, and that's an environment that, you know, you have to be have pretty thick skin to, to operate in. And then, and he had the same situation with Culverhouse in reverse. Culverhouse didn't want to win, didn't want to spend money in Tampa Bay. So it was a, it was a, a, a difficult situation for him. But when he went to Green Bay, he said, without question, we have to find a quarterback and the quarterback spread farm and I'm making a decision and that's that. And in many ways, I, what I found was that we were a lot alike. We came from different backgrounds, but we were a lot alike in that regard. And, and the, the, if you're gonna talk about general managers, the key is there, the key takeaway is the courage of your convictions. That you have to have that. If you don't have that, you, you won't. What was take me into your world for a minute and tell take me into the uh, wherever it was. Take me into the decision where you knew that everybody in the building is saying, "Polian's an idiot. He's going to do this," <laughs> and we have to say we support him. But what's the decision you made that you really felt around you that people were not crazy about? Edger and James, uh, the, the, you know, we, Edger had not been on television, but once because Miami was on probation. So the world didn't know it. Uh, secondly, uh, we had just traded Marshall Falk, which was not popular at all. And now we're going to, everybody's expecting we're going to draft Ricky Williams. We never said a word about it, which is our way of, what was our way of doing things. But everybody had assumed we're going to draft Ricky Williams, and uh, and so on. The, the, the two uh, the two events took place pretty close to one another. We traded Marshall, and then the draft was upcoming very shortly afterwards. So the day we traded Marshall, our, our PR director came in and said, "If I were you, I wouldn't go anywhere near the media today, and 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 don't go to any supermarkets or anything like that because you're not very popular around this town right now." I said, "Okay, that's fine." <laughs> And so a couple of days later, whenever it was, only Mr. Ursay knew who we were going to take. And, and, and Coach Mora, we, we, we drafted Edger and James. And the, the PR man came into the draft room and said, the phones are blowing up. People, it's just, this is unbelievable. People are up in arms. They want to storm the building. What is going on? Who is this guy? And Dominelli, who you know, our great personnel yeah. director, who God rest his soul, uh, and, and Tom Telesco was then was then our college scouting coordinator. 
took his car keys and turned to to Tom and flipped them to him. He says, "Hey, Tom, go start my car, will you please?" <laughs> For the reference being that somebody was there might have been a bomb in there. <laughs> but it, I said to Tom, "Don't worry about your car. It's aimed at me." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but. That 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 decision was you know, in the building. People in the marketing department would be. They lost Marshall Falk, who's a, you know, the be all and end all. And now they get a guy that no one ever heard about. I think they were ready to go, run and play in traffic. You know, it was. It, it certainly wasn't not a popular decision. You know, I'll never forget Bill doing a story for Sports Illustrated in in uh, nineteen ninety eight. In the spring, I uh, I got a in those days it was you know a VCR tape and um, I had a friend of mine at NFL Films uh, put thirty plays of Peyton Manning from Tennessee and thirty plays of Ryan Leaf from uh, Washington State. And I decided I am going to take this tape and I'm going to go visit six people whose opinions of our quarterback that I really trust. And what was amazing is that in those days, the media was not nearly as omnipresent and as voracious as it is today. So I think people were really willing to sit down for an hour and a half or so and watch this tape. And I'll never forget, I went to Sid Gilman's house in California. And for those who don't know Sid Gilman, he's one of the greatest coaches of the position in football history. And I'll never forget how much he was really in love with the precision of Peyton Manning. And, uh, and he liked Ryan Leaf. That was the funny thing about that. I did not talk to one person who didn't write, like Ryan Leaf. But I remember leaving there every place I went to, you know, including Bill Walsh, every place I went to and everyone, I, because I, I asked them all at the end, who would you pick? And they all said, I'd pick Manning. And I always wondered when you had to make that decision, what was the moment that you knew you were going to pick Manning? Oh, I guess, I guess it was after the workouts. We went, to, neither guy worked at the combine. Um, so we went and worked them out personally. And, and we worked them out back to back. We went to Tennessee and worked Peyton out and then went out. They, they would not give us a private workout at Washington State. We just observed the, uh, the, 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 you know, the regular workout for every, every team. Um, in, in the Peyton workout, I was I was surprised by two things. Number one, the scuttlebutt was that he had a weak arm. That's not true at all. Number true. Number two, the the scuttlebutt was that, that he was quote a product of the system, whatever that meant. I, I, to this yeah. day, I don't know what it, what it meant. <laughs> but Tom Moore put him through our, our offensive coordinator put him through a series of drills. And after the workout was all over, I said to Tom, man, oh, man, he's got a much stronger arm than I thought. And Tom said, you're right. You know, that, that ball spins. He throws a heavy ball. 
in the parlance of the, of the business, it means it's it's got a lot of revolutions. It's hard to catch, and uh, and so um, obviously it's it's you know in, in bad weather, a heavy ball is a lot easier. It goes through the bad weather a lot easier than one that doesn't have as many revolutions. So um, then we put him on the chalkboard, and I mean he blew it away. He absolutely blew it away. So okay, let's 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 follow the scientific process, you know, let's go out and we'll do the very same thing with Ryan. And we did. And about halfway through Ryan's workout, I walked over to Tom and I said, hey, Tom, you know, the scuttlebutt is that Peyton had the weaker arm. Ryan can't carry his job. Wow. And, 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 and Tom said, you're right. You're right. He, he's That's got a much so stronger arm. I, ne I never heard that. I never yeah. heard that. Yeah. And then we went through the process of interviewing and, and, and you're right, people were, were correct to like Ryan. He was a good quarterback, uh, but the, the, the interview was a disaster. And, and, and his, uh, his approach to things was not nearly as mature, not even in the same universe with Peyton. And so I recall getting on the plane to go home, Mr. O'Shea had given us the company plan, getting on the plane to go home. And I turned to Tom and, and, to, and to Coach Mora and said, you know, if we stick to our guns and what we believe in, Peyton Manning's our choice. And everybody just nodded and said, yeah, that's right. Were you surprised? I, you know what surprised me about that whole thing, Bill? I, I, you know, about Leaf, the person. Obviously, you know, he had some demons that eventually surfaced. Uh, I feel bad for the guy, as as everybody would. But... It's really surprising that, to me, um, a really good, smart GM and organization, because I had tremendous respect for Bobby Beathard, um, I'm really surprised that they ended up taking him. Not, I shouldn't say surprised, but I would have thought that some of those warts would have surfaced in their investigation of him. Do you ever have any theory about that aspect of it and were you at all surprised he went number two uh no and i did have knowledge of it actually as we were entering uh the stadium in pullman for the public workout bobby and his people were coming out because lee steinberg the agent for uh for uh ryan had given them a private workout so we said hello and, and you know we've been friends for we're friends for a long time still are and uh and I had great respect for Bobby. And he said, um, you'll enjoy it. He said, he, he's a good player. You'll like it. And, uh, and then he said, listen, uh, if you're interested in trading the pick, let me know. And I said, okay, I don't think we will. But if that's the case, I'll give you a holler. And so it, 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 it told me all I needed to know about where Bobby felt yeah. the two guys were. Yeah, yeah. Now, and, you know, hey. When you, when you need a quarterback, sometimes you have to accept one with warts. That's exactly right. And he thought, Bobby thought, as, as do many GMs, as I did in, in, in the past in some cases, uh, that he could fix him. Yeah. But when those problems, you can fix mechanical problems. It's been my experience that it's very much more difficult to fix emotional or psychological problems. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Um, 
I want to ask you two questions uh, before we go about the modern game and today's game. I just spent a weekend in Cincinnati and I watched the 49ers and the Bengals. And I came away from there really so impressed with Joe Burrow. And not only Joe Burrow, the football player, but he just has, even though it doesn't look like it, he looks kind of like a mama's boy, you know? He, he, he's, he's sort of one of these, uh, I don't know, I call them machine gun burrow in my column, but he just looks to me, he, the way he carries himself and the way he plays is, guys, get on my shoulders, we're going to be fine. You know, don't, don't worry about anything. And I asked Mike Brown this question. <clears throat> Mike Brown, obviously the owner of the Bengals and runs the franchise. And even though he doesn't run the draft, you know, as, as maniacally as, as the Brown family used to, that's, um, you know, Duke Tobin, uh, Bill Tobin's uh, son is the guy who runs the draft now. But I said to him, you know, there are a lot of reports last year that you were going to, that you might think about a trade with Miami and that Miami uh, was willing to offer as many as five first round picks to move up to try to get Joe Burrow. And Mike just said to me, it, it would not have mattered what anybody offered. Uh, we were not trading the pick for any amount of uh, draft capital. And Part of that at the time, I remember thinking, if that's true, the Bengals have to take that offer. But now that I've watched Burrow for a year and a half, I'm not a big college football watcher, but now that I've watched Burrow for a year and a half, I'm, this is going to sound crazy. I wouldn't trade him for eight ones. And I just want to know your thought about the value of a quarterback and how do you put sort of draft pick capital value on a quarterback if you really want him. Well, we went through the very same thing with, with Peyton and the Carolina Panthers in Indianapolis. They offered a King's ransom plus, and we didn't do it and had no intention of doing it. And here's why. You just said it yourself. The guy that says via his performance, his leadership, his work ethic, his ability. Come on, get on my shoulders. I'm going to take you where we need to go. Trust me, do what you need to do, and I'll do the rest. That guy is invaluable. There, are no, there is no amount of draft capital that can sway you from taking that guy because that's what you're looking for. That's what the process is all about. It's about that guy that can take you to the promised land and they're few and far between. And when you are convinced that you're looking at that guy and they come in all shapes and sizes and all different styles of quarterbacking, there's not one mold, but there is one um, persona, if you will, that you covet. That's what the position's all about. And when you find that guy, that's it, man. You, you, because you may never get another shot at him as long as you're in the business. Yeah. I find that really interesting, and I totally agree with you. You might not ever get a shot to take Joe Burrow again. 
You might go, and I don't even know who the quarterbacks are this year. Kenny Pickett, the Pitt kid. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe those guys are really good. But I don't know how you could live with yourself if you had a real conviction on Joe Burrow in the first pick in the draft, and you took six ones. And I mean, maybe those ones be four of them became good contributing players. Maybe you signed two of them to second contracts, but they would never equate to a quarterback. No, you're still looking for the guy to take you to the promised land. Yeah. I, I'll close with I'm taking too much of your time, and I appreciate it, but I, I'll give you a little vignette. When Favre was playing at Southern Mississippi, he was going <laughs> to play against Georgia between the hedges, open the season. And he, he was playing at about 175 pounds because he'd been in an auto accident during the summer yeah. and, and, and you know had a good portion of his intestine removed, I think. And needless to say, he wasn't in great shape. And and his Southern Miss team couldn't couldn't even line up with the dogs. And it was one of those, you know, 95 degrees uh, in temperature and 95% humidity, you know, where you say, oh, I don't know if I get past the quarter of this. And <laughs> the game comes down to the last play in the game. And he rolls out to his right. Pirouettes comes back, finds a guy in the corner of the end zone to win the game between the hedges and the receiver wow. drops the ball. Oh my gosh, no. Yes. So then I go back to Buffalo and Mr. Wilson's in the office the next day. It's game day. And he said, where'd you go yesterday? I said, I went to Georgia to see, uh, to see uh, uh, the, the quarterback from Southern Mississippi. He said, what's his name? I said, Brett Favre. He said, what's he like? I said, he's the next Jim Kelly. <laughs> and he said, get out of here. <laughs> I never heard of this guy. I that's said, a well, great that's a now. great story that's really those, good those guys are, are are so valuable yeah that, you know when you get your hands on them don't let go you know what i when you tell that story you know what i, I think of i remember it was his third year in green bay this would have been around 94 and he still was making some dumb throws and he'd make a couple of miracle throws and then he'd make a dumb throw to cost him a game. And, <clears throat> and Mike Holmgren one day had a staff meeting and all of his coaches sit in the room and he said, okay, I'm going to take a vote. I think, I think I'm right. When I say this, you're it correct. It's Brunel, in the book. It was either Brunel. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah. It was either yeah. Brunel or Ty Detmer. Okay. It's but Brunel, I think Brunel. Yeah. And he asked him, he basically, you know, they, they took a vote and Favre won. And I remember asking Holmgren, what would happen if Favre didn't win? And I think he would have tried to fix the vote because I think he <laughs> wanted, he was, he was sick and tired of it, but he knew how great Favre was. He describes, you know, him, and, yeah. he describes him in the book as my problem child, who in the end, I couldn't live without. Yeah, yeah. That's a really, really good one. Bill, before you go, I want to ask you one other thing. If you were in the Jacksonville Jaguars building and you're the general manager and uh, you're having all of these issues, these public issues, um, you know, with your head coach, Urban Meyer, you'd walk into his office. Tell me the conversation you'd have with Urban Meyer today. Well, I, I, I think you'd say probably would have had it sooner than today, but yeah, uh, I, 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 I'd probably say, tell me what's going on here. 
and, and let's formulate a plan um, to make this right. Because we got to recognize that the players deserve respect and, and they're not always going to like the decisions you make, but they need to, you need to explain them so that they, because they do deserve respect. And secondly, if there are coaches that, that are not doing what they need to do, then make a change. I'll back you hundred percent, but let's make sure that we know what all the facts are and then let's deal with it in a couple of sentences and move on. We can't win football games by being the stars of soap operas. I think that's a great way to put it. If I were, if I were the, the Jaguars now, if I were Shad Khan, I, I mean, I, I've got to tell you, I would not give up on Urban Meyer yet, even though the outcry is give us his head, you know, give us Barabbas. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, and I said to somebody today, and I actually wrote this on Twitter, I said, I wonder what would have happened if Twitter and social media had been around in 1989 when Jimmy Johnson loses at home to the Eagles 27 to nothing late in the year to go one and 11. And then two weeks later, he loses to the Giants 15 to nothing. Uh, and I wonder what would have been said because Jimmy at the time, he was inside the building. He was Mount Vesuvius. You know, he's just so angry. He was used to winning his whole life. And again, Bill, I don't know what's going on there. I really don't. I don't have people inside the building telling me what's going on. But I think I would say that if you thought so much of this guy that you were convinced that he was the guy, I don't know how three months into it, even though he has made mistakes, I don't know how he's made enough mistakes for it to be fatal after three months. I, I just, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not ready to throw in the towel yet on the guy. Well, first of all, Urban's not a good coach. He's a great coach. Yeah. Second of all, when any of us change jobs, whether it's going from one newspaper or radio station or television station to another or one team to another and then compounded by going from one level to another, there's always a learning curve. Now, Urban's a brilliant guy. He's very successful. He's been very successful. And he'll be fine. These kinds of things are happen every day in the National Football League. The problem is today that we have omnipresent media and omnipresent people on social media who have no idea that these kinds of things happen every day. Yeah. Be simply because they're not privy to it. So this is this is not only a, a, a you know a tempest in a teapot, but it's a tempest in a teapot that happens all the time. He's been through this before. College kids, well, much more uh, much less assertive than pros. Yeah. As he pointed out, by the way, in his remarks, I, you know, they're, they're not angels either. You run across difficulties with them. And as a head coach, you have to handle them. <clears throat> this is not out of the ordinary. It's simple. And, and, and to make a decision to let a coach go based on, on innuendo and, and nonsense, it, I mean, that's nonsense. That's crazy. 
Yeah. Give him a chance to build a team, for goodness sake. Think about Chuck Knoll, right? Three and 13, I believe. Horrendous. One, one game his first year, right? One game his first 13. year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Three horrendous losing seasons. The Rooney's never lost faith. Chuck Knoll, by the way, was not warm and fuzzy, as Ted, Terry Bradshaw points out in the book. Yeah. Uh, uh, Super Bowl blueprints. But the Rooney stuck with him. And he created one of the great dynasties in the history of sport. This is this is this is a tempest in a teapot. Super Bowl blueprints: Hall of Famers reveal the keys to football's greatest dynasties by Bill Polian with Vic Carucci. Bill, really appreciate it. All the best luck with the book, and uh, we'll see you down the road very soon. Look forward to it, Peter. Thank you. My thanks to Paul Burmeister, my friend at NBC Sports, uh, for the great football conversation this week. And also to Bill Polian, who's the author of Super Bowl Blueprints, Hall of Famers Reveal the Keys to Football's Greatest Dynasties. Um, I, think, I think you'd really learn something from the book. It's amazing to listen to Polian talk about how much he learned uh, from the book do, during the process of it. Um, but anyway, that's it for this week's podcast. Really appreciate you joining me. I look forward to talking to you next week. Next week, I will be on the road. I'll be in Seattle. Uh, we will have a discussion about all things NFL really heading down the stretch of the 2021 NFL season. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll talk to you next week. time inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply